Envision this. You're seeing a 26-year-old patient that comes to the emergency department reporting chills, myalgia, headache, and fever. I don't think I've ever felt this horrible, they admit. The fever comes and goes, but the aches, headache, and chills don't go away. I just got back from a one-month mission trip to Benin in West Africa. But I drank bottled water the whole time, and none of the other volunteers got sick like this. The patient's temperature is 102.4 degrees Fahrenheit, and their heart rate is 110 beats per minute. Physical examination reveals yellowing of the whites of their eyes and an enlarged liver. What would be your presumptive diagnosis, and what test should be ordered? Welcome to Audiobricks. This is Ed Barnes breaking down malaria in your ears. After completing this brick, you will be able to 1. Define malaria and describe its epidemiology. 2. Describe the typical clinical presentation of malaria. 3. Outline the pathophysiology of malaria, including virulence and host factors, and explain how the life cycle of plasmodium species affects the course of the disease. 4. Explain how malaria is typically diagnosed and... 5. Describe how malaria is treated and prevented. Part 1. What is malaria? Malaria is a life-threatening parasitic disease transmitted to humans via infected mosquitoes. It is common in tropical regions. Plasmodium parasites inflect red blood cells, or RBCs, causing them to lice and giving rise to high recurring fevers. When the destruction of RBCs occurs at a higher rate than that in which bone marrow can produce the cells, hemolytic anemia occurs. Malaria can sometimes result in severe complications including multi-organ failure. Malaria has been documented as far back as the time of Hippocrates, around 400 BCE. But its cause was long a mystery. The disease was originally thought to arise from miasma, or air contaminated by particles of decomposed matter. In fact, the name malaria originates from the Italian mal, area, which means bad air. Most cases and deaths occur in sub-Saharan Africa, but the disease is also present in certain parts of Southeast Asia, the Eastern Mediterranean, the Western Pacific, and the Americas. In 2020, There were more than 240 million cases of malaria worldwide and 627,000 deaths from the disease. The majority of malaria deaths occur in children younger than 5 years. Approximately 2,000 cases are diagnosed in the United States annually, mainly among travelers and immigrants coming from regions such as Africa or Southeast Asia. In areas where malaria is endemic, Children are the group most susceptible to the disease because they have not yet acquired the partial immunity that is common in adults in those regions. People who travel to those areas of endemicity are at high risk for the same reason. Let's pause for a quiz. Why are young children in areas of endemicity most susceptible to malaria? They have not yet acquired the partial immunity that is common in adults in regions where malaria is endemic. Part 2. How do patients with malaria present? The most characteristic symptom of malaria is recurrent episodes of fever. 
caused by excess inflammatory cytokine release associated with the immune response to the parasite. Early in the course of the disease, febrile episodes occur at irregular intervals every day. In later stages, the maturational cycle of the parasite can become synchronized so that RBCs rupture in waves, causing fevers to recur at characteristic intervals. Different species of the parasite have different maturation times within the RBCs, so the length of time between fevers varies by plasmodium species. P. nolazi causes quotidian fevers, meaning occurs every 24 hours. P. falciparum initially causes quotidian fevers, followed by tertian fevers, meaning occurring every 48 hours, later in the course of infection. P. vivax and P. ovale cause tertian fever. P. malariae causes quartan fever, meaning every 72 hours. In addition to fever, malaria also causes flu-like illness, with symptoms that include fatigue, headache, muscle aches, and chills. Nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea may also occur. Destruction of RBCs may lead to anemia and jaundice. Severe cases can result in multi-organ failure and patients may experience altered consciousness, seizures, respiratory distress, shock, renal failure, stroke, liver failure, and severe coagulopathy. Let's stop for another quiz. What causes the characteristic recurrent episodes of fever and malaria? The recurrent episodes of fever are caused by excess inflammatory cytokine release associated with the immune response to the parasite. Part 3. What is the pathophysiology of malaria? The pathophysiology of malaria is characterized by parasitic infection of RBCs, which leads to the lysis of RBCs and systemic effects. Let's dive deeper into the parasitology of malaria. Malaria is caused by parasitic protozoans of the genus Plasmodium, which infect RBCs. These parasites are transmitted by mosquitoes of the genus Anopheles. Like all blood-borne pathogens, transmission may also occur through blood transfusions and needle sharing. Four species of Plasmodium, P. falciparum, P. vivax, P. malariae, and P. ovale are responsible for the vast majority of human malaria cases. One additional species, P. nolisi, is a primate parasite that can also infect humans, but this species accounts for a small number of cases. The parasites appear as dark areas inside red blood cells on microscopic examination. You may observe a unique finding with P. falciparum. There is a crescent-shaped gametocyte with a dark area in the center. We'll revisit this later. Plasmodium falciparum is the most common species and also the most deadly. The Anopheles mosquito transmits plasmodia to human hosts via a bite. The entire life cycle of the parasite takes place within these two organisms, with humans as the reservoir and the mosquitoes as the vector of transmission. There are several stages of plasmodial development in both humans and mosquitoes but we'll focus on the human part of the life cycle. Stage 1. Mosquito Bites Human Plasmodium gametocytes within a mosquito develop into sporozoites, the infectious form of the parasite. 
The sporozoites are injected from the mosquito into a human during a bite. Stage 2. The liver hosts plasmodium organisms. The sporozoites travel through the bloodstream to the liver, enter hepatocytes, and divide and multiply within these cells as schizonts. Finally, the schizonts rupture, releasing parasites into the blood, where they are now termed merozoites. Stage 3. The Erythrocytic Cycle Merozoites enter RBCs where they feed on hemoglobin. Their parasites transform into trophozoites, the active amoeboid cell form. Trophozoites mature into schizonts, which rupture and release merozoites, continuing the cycle of infection. In two species, P. vivax and P. ovale, the parasites may reside in the liver in a dormant form called a hypnozoite for days, weeks, or even years, eventually causing disease relapse many years after the initial infection. Stage 4. Humans transmit the parasite to the mosquito. Some of the parasites within humans develop into gametocytes within the RBC. Once they commit to this phase, they fall out of the infection-slash-replication cycle, remain in the bloodstream, and may be ingested by another mosquito that bites the infected person. The gametocyte in most plasmodium species are fairly nonspecific, resembling round blobs. P. falciparum gametocytes, however, have a distinct crescent shape, as we mentioned earlier. There are three major features of P. falciparum that contribute to its virulence. Number one, unlike other plasmodium species, which have a preference for young or older RBCs, P. falciparum infects all RBCs, regardless of life cycle stage. This leads to higher parasite numbers in the blood. Number two, mature forms of P. falciparum are able to sequester in deep venous microvasculature. Infected RBCs bind to uninfected RBCs, leading to RBC clumping, forming rosettes. The RBC clumping occurs because of variance factor called parasite-encoded erythrocyte membrane protein 1, or PFEMP1, which effectively sequesters the pathogen from circulation. Number 3. P. falciparum also stimulates the production of pro-inflammatory cytokines, Parasite-encoded proteins are recognized by pattern recognition receptors on leukocytes, such as toll-like receptors. This leads to white blood cell expression of pro-inflammatory cytokines, including interleukin-1, tumor necrosis factor alpha, and interferon gamma. These cytokines are responsible for the chills, high fever, and patterns of fever that are characteristic of malaria. Let's now pivot to discuss host defenses. In areas that are endemic for malaria, acquired host defenses lead to a partial protective immunity that typically prevents severe disease. Some of this protective immunity is caused by genetic alterations of red blood cells. For example, in sickle cell disease, also known as SCD. Why is this? Well, people with genetic backgrounds from areas of endemicity have a higher frequency of these RBC genetic mutations than do people with the genetic background from areas that are not endemic. It is thought that these mutations are maintained in the endemic populations because they offer a selective advantage when they are on one chromosome, i.e. heterozygous, 
In contrast, when the mutations are on both chromosomes, homozygous, they may cause anemia. Two of these RBC mutations involved in glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase, or G6PD deficiency, and SCD, appear to confer some degree of resistance against malaria, creating RBC environments that are inhospitable to the parasite. G6PD deficiency is an X-linked recessive disease that reduces red blood cells' ability to respond to oxidative stress. SED is an autosomal recessive disorder in which hemoglobin polymerizes when it releases oxygen. As we discussed, in areas that are endemic from malaria, acquired host defenses lead to partial protective immunity that typically prevents severe disease. Epidemiological data support this linkage of SCD to malaria resistance. We have compared the distribution of sickle cell trait and malaria within Africa, and the locale similarities support the linkage of the two. Other hemoglobin abnormalities that seem to confer some resistance to malaria include hemoglobin S, C, SC, E, and F, as well as alpha and beta thalassemias. The effect is also seen in the absence of the Duffy blood group antigens on RBCs. Here's another quick quiz. How can P. vivax and P. ovale species cause relapses of malaria weeks to years after the initial infection? The P. vivax and P. ovale parasites may reside in the liver in a dormant form called a hypnozoite for days, weeks, or even years, eventually causing disease relapse. Let's move on to discuss the complications of the disease. In any form of malaria, a loss of RBCs may lead to anemia and jaundice. Infected RBCs are less deformable and so are more likely to be damaged than lice, leading to hemolytic anemia. This leads to a decreased RBCs and increased bilirubin in the blood, released from the lysed RBCs, leading to jaundice. The RBCs are also more likely to adhere to endothelial cells. As a result, blood flow is impeded, causing ischemia or infarction in the brain, kidneys, and other organs. Other malaria complications include the following. 1. Cerebral malaria, causing coma and seizures. 2. Splenomegaly, caused by chronic antigenic stimulation in people who reside in areas of endemicity. 3. Acute kidney injury caused by both parasitic obstruction of renal blood flow and immune reactions in the glomerulus. 4. Tissue factor production with activation of clotting cascade leading to thrombosis or clotting in multiple organs. This may cause multi-organ failure including seizure, stroke, respiratory distress, shock, acute kidney injury, acute liver failure, and disseminated intravascular coagulation with diffuse bleeding and clotting throughout the body. Part 4. How do we diagnose malaria? In an area that is endemic, malaria is usually diagnosed by the characteristic pattern of fever. Physical findings may include an enlarged liver caused by infected hepatocytes, as well as signs of hemolytic anemia, such as pallor or jaundice. Lab testing is often conducted to confirm the diagnosis. What lab tests aid in the diagnosis of malaria? Patients have a normocytic, normochromic anemia on a complete blood count. There may be also elevated serum lactate dehydrogenase levels that are common to many hemolytic anemias. 
The gold standard diagnostic test is microscopy of a GM-sustained peripheral blood smear. Blood smear examination can reveal not only the presence of the plasmodium organisms, but also the species and the level of parasite burden. Although all red blood cell stages of plasmodium organisms can be seen in blood smears, the most common form is the ring form of the trophozoite. This is especially the case for P. falciparum infections because of its sequestration. When microscopy is not available, rapid diagnostic tests for malaria may be used. These rapid tests employ specific monoclonal antibodies. Because they do not require electricity or refrigeration, they are increasingly used in areas with limited medical resources. Let's stop for a quiz. What is the gold standard diagnostic test for malaria? The gold standard test to identify the plasmodium parasite is via GM-sustained peripheral blood smear. Part 5. How do we treat and prevent malaria? The prognosis for malaria is good with appropriate treatment. The parasite is usually cleared from the body within 48 hours. In regions where malaria is chloroquine sensitive, the Middle East and parts of Asia and Central America, the preferred treatment is chloroquine, generally given for 48 hours. Chloroquine inhibits parasitic growth by multiple mechanisms, including DNA and RNA replication and raising intracellular pH. Adverse effects of chloroquine include headaches and dizziness. In areas with chloroquine-resistant malaria, Africa and most other areas, options include artemisinin-based combination therapies. Artemisinin should always be given with another antiparasitic drug, for example, artemether, lumefantrine, amodeoquine, mefloquine, or piperaquine, to avoid the development of antibiotic resistance. With the combination therapy, artemisinin serves as a rapid eliminator of parasite whereas the partner drug usually has longer-lasting effects and prevents reinfection. Adverse effects of artemisinin include ECG, QT interval prolongation, palpitations, and headache. Only certain anti-malarial drugs are able to get into the liver and kill P. vivax and P. ovale organisms. The most effective and widely used drugs for this purpose are artemisinin-based combination therapies and chloroquine combined with primaquine. Next, let's discuss prevention, mosquito netting, insecticides, and seasonal chemoprophylaxis, meaning using drugs to prevent disease, have shown some success in malaria prevention. An exciting recent development is that malaria vaccines, RTSS, is now recommended for all five-month-old children in areas that are endemic for P. falciparum. The vaccine has an efficacy of 30% in reducing severe disease. The vaccine consists of a virus-like particle made of a fusion protein consisting of the P. falciparum circumsporozoite protein and hepatitis B surface antigen. Here's one last quiz. What is the mechanism of action of the common anti-malarial drug chloroquine? Chloroquine works by inhibiting heme polymerase within the erythrocyte, making the parasite susceptible to toxic effects of ferroprotoporphyrin 9. And that brings us to the end of our discussion on malaria. 
Now, let's recap and see if we've completed our goals. First, can you state where most cases and deaths secondary to malaria occur? Most cases and deaths due to malaria occur in sub-Saharan Africa. But the disease is also present in certain parts of Southeast Asia, the Eastern Mediterranean, the Western Pacific, and the Americas. Next, can you describe the most common symptoms when a patient presents with malaria? Recurrent episodes of fevers are the most common symptom that patients with malaria present with. Next, are you able to name which organ in the human body hosts the plasmodium parasite during the life cycle of the infection in the body? The liver hosts the plasmodium parasite. The sporozoites travel through the bloodstream to the liver, enter hepatocytes, and divide and multiply within the cells as schizonts. Next, can you name the gold standard lab test used to diagnose malaria? The gold standard diagnostic test is microscopy of a GM-sustained peripheral blood smear. Blood smear examination can reveal not only the presence of plasmodium organisms, but also the species and the level of parasite burden. Finally, can you name the medication used to treat malaria if a patient acquired their infection in the Middle East? Chloroquine is used for most patients in chloroquine-sensitive areas of the world like the Middle East and parts of Asia and Central America. In areas with chloroquine-resistant malaria, like Africa and most other areas, the options include artemisinin-based combination therapies. And that's it. Armed with your newfound knowledge of malaria, let's get back to the patient from the beginning of this episode. You are caring for a 26-year-old patient that presented with chills, myalgia, headache, and fever that recently returned from a trip to West Africa. Their temperature is 102.4 degrees Fahrenheit, and their heart rate is 110 beats per minute. Physical examination reveals yellowing of the whites of their eyes and an enlarged liver. What would be your presumptive diagnosis, and what tests should be ordered? A peripheral blood smear confirms the suspicion of malaria. When viewing the smear, the ring form of the trophozoite is visible looking a bit like the red blood cell swallowed a diamond ring. The patient is told that malaria is caused by a parasite transmitted to humans by mosquitoes and that they acquired the infection while overseas. They begin treatment and after one week they feel much better. This won't stop me from going back on another trip, they say, but I'll be much more diligent about using my mosquito net in the future. And that's it for our show. Make sure to like and subscribe if you like what you hear. And remember, your feedback helps us improve. You can enjoy the full Brook experience online at www.usmle-rx.com, complete with illustrations, questions, flashcards, and active learning. So go check that out if you haven't already. Until next time.